In 1987, the 13 most powerful football teams in Brazil broke away from the Brazilian Footballing Confederation and made their own league. They represented 95% of all football fans in Brazil, but their alliance only lasted for a single season. In 2003, Russian billionaire oligarch Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea Football Club. Abramovich had more than deep pockets, he had deep connections. It was him that recommended that Vladimir Putin succeed Boris Yeltsin as the leader of Russia, and him again that suggested Medvedev replace Putin during his brief stint away from the top spot. Fresh off a win in the 2003 Super Bowl, the owners of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Glazer family, began looking to invest in European football. Would it even have been possible for them to overlook the most valuable football team in the world under the command of the game's most influential manager? Boasting Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, Ruud van Nistelrooy and the up-and-coming duo of Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo, who could ever have looked further than Manchester United? Not the Glazers, clearly. In 2008, the same year the world collapsed into its worst ever economic depression. Manchester City were bought by the current Deputy Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates, and Arsenal went to the owner of the Los Angeles Rams, the Denver Nuggets, Colorado Avalanche, Colorado Rapids and Walmart. In 2010, Liverpool was sold to the owner of the Boston Red Sox, and Leicester City was bought by a billionaire from Thailand. When Leicester won the 2015-16 Premier League title, it was touted as an underdog story, but even the Rocky of the Premier League was owned by a foreign billionaire. The highest transfer fee of 2003 was paid for David Beckham as he moved from Manchester United to Real Madrid. He went for £25 million. When Paris Saint-Germain bought Neymar just 14 years later, it was for 200 and 22 million euros. Just in case you didn't notice, uh, there was a global pandemic that hit in 2020 and it kind of destroyed the lives and economic prospects of like everyone who wasn't Jeff Bezos. But on the 19th of April 2021, something quite incredible happened to the footballing world. While the Brazilian breakaway lasted an entire season, this European one didn't make it to 48 hours. When we started recording this, the cracks in the foundations had began to show, and by the time we finished, the corporate house of cards had collapsed. Welcome back to Who Watches the World Cup, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of football and politics. Today, we're breaking down the European Super League. So... With me today to discuss the European Super League is Awful Commentary founder and lifelong Manchester United fan, Stephen Mears. Steve, it has been so long since you were featured on something from Awful Commentary. It is like, I don't know, I've, it's, it's an honour to have you back. It's like coming to the high school reunion after <laughs> 15 years of being out of town. Yeah, and that means you come back in and everyone like me are still doing the same shit they've always done. And you're coming in like, oh, you know, I just work for a rock star. It's like, oh, oh, my God. He's just... Honestly, people, he's too busy leading his dream life to uh, to make content anymore. An awful commentary was always your idea. 
I know. I'd, I had to... Anyway, we're here to talk about football, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Something to do with a super league. Yes, well, I've brought you in to talk about this because when the Super League was announced, and we should say, as we started recording, Manchester City have just withdrawn. Chelsea are expected to follow. There's rumours going around. You know, the Super League is crumbling before it even started. You know, the Brazilian one lasted a season. This one seems to have lasted a day. Um, but when I it was first announced, I was watching different pundits being like, this is a disgrace. It's an abomination. What were they thinking? And I was like, well, this kind of makes sense if you're a capitalist. And then I messaged you about it and you were like, this is fucking awful. And I was like, OK, Steve, what firstly, what is this Super League? Is there a history to it? What does it all mean? So the Super League is a, well, proposed new European footballing competition spearheaded, it seems, well, no, spearheaded by uh, the president of Real Madrid, who I forget his first name, but is someone Perez, and uh, the owners of Manchester United, the Glazer family, they seem to be the uh, top two parties that are driving this forward but what it will be is a a new competition which would be 20 teams uh, from Europe battling it out across uh, a season to then try and figure out who is the best in Europe Uh, so it's kind of a well replacement to the existing Champions League but it was uh initially announced as like a supplementary competition to the existing uh, European Champions League, uh, but with a few key differences that um, there are 12 founding teams at the moment uh, that would be expanded to 15. And these founding teams would have a lifelong membership to this league. And then there would be five additional places that would be filled by other teams from within European footballing leagues. Uh, the details of how those five would be chosen, I don't think was ever <laughs> ever got to the stage of actually being detailed. Um, and the teams involved, there were six teams from England, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Tottenham Hotspurs and Chelsea. Then there were three teams from Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico Madrid, and three teams from Italy, Juventus, AC Milan, and Inter Milan. They were the 12 initial founding teams. Then they were hoping to get on board an additional three teams to make 15. Then there would be these five places up for grabs. Um, And it would kind of work a bit like what I would say, the Super Bowl. It would be split into two leagues or conferences of 10 teams. The top three teams would, from each league, would go through to a knockout stage. The teams that finished fourth and fifth in each league would play in a playoff, and then the winner of that playoff would enter. So you would get four teams into a knockout tournament. Um which would be over two legs, and then you'd have a single leg final to declare the winner 
of this new European Super League. Uh, yeah, and that's the basic format that they announced. Right. So just looking at the teams themselves, like and and who's running this organization. You've got, as you say, is it Florentino Perez, the the president of Real Madrid? I think. I think you are then, right. Yes. Yeah. So he's be he was like the chairman of this overall thing. He had a very controversial statement today, saying we had to do this because young people don't watch football anymore, and that's something I want to kind of come onto a little bit later. But he uh, he's the president of the whole thing. Then the chairman of Juventus, who is a, an Italian, is Andrea Agnelli. Uh, he yeah he's the one of the vice chairmans Joel Glazer of United he's a a co-chairman uh, John Henry from Liverpool he's another American Stan Kroenke the the owner of Arsenal another American one of the things one of the first things that was said about this and you brought it up when you said about the Super Bowl is this is an Americanization of our sport and it's worth saying, if we're going to talk about the Super Bowl, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, owned by the Glazers, did just win the Super Bowl earlier in the year. So clearly, the Glazers feel like they are doing something right. Um, and this is the next step for them to take, right? But, like, is this a new idea, the Super League? Like, it just, they announced it fucking out of nowhere, basically, Yesterday, after reassuring like UEFA for like a week, oh no, we're not going to announce it, we're not going to announce it, bam, they announce it, and everyone shits themselves. Uh, where does this idea come from? Like, is there any history to it? And why is it even different to the Champions League at all? Like, why bother? So I think this idea of a Super League has kind of been floated around or rumoured for quite a number of years now. Uh, there's in the last day or so there have been quotes from Jurgen Klopp from 2019 stating that he doesn't like the idea of a Super League there was quotes going around from when Louis van Gaal was manager of Manchester United commenting on a Super League so uh, rumblings of a, a European Super League or some sort of changing of the format of the Champions League have kind of been spoken about for quite a while and even yesterday or the day after all the news started breaking about the announcement of this Super League it was the day before that UEFA announced planned uh, reforms to the existing Champions League so I think the let's say quote biggest clubs in Europe have been kind of gunning for a change in the Champions League for quite a while now, in the hopes to kind of get a more permanent place within the competition or to help cement their place in the top uh, competition for, for quite a while. So I guess you could say, in a way, this has kind of been a long time coming. But then, at the same time, it's been a very low rumble. And then all of a sudden, a few days ago it erupted like a volcano and it caught everybody by surprise that nobody realised that this was actually going to happen so fast. There was no real concrete rumours about, you know, oh, there's talks that this club might be doing this. It, it kind of came out of nowhere in a way. But there is some history to the idea of 
trying to make some revisions to to the Champions League format. Looking at what we were saying about the, like the Americanization of it as well, the money all seemed to come from J.P. Morgan. Obviously, the, the um, basically the causes of the financial crisis in two thousand eight <laughs> are back, baby, and they're, they're back to ruin more of the the, the stuff for the working class. But that seems to be a big reason for why people are so upset about this, right? Is that football, at least in, in this country, and I think throughout Europe, is historically a sport of the working class. And people seem to be angry because it's been taken away from uh, from working class fans who were just like, you know, you'd, you'd spend your week in the fucking coal mine exhausting yourself for the labor just to you know just to get through the week then you go to the pub and on saturday thank god you can go and watch the football at least and you go with your friends you go with your colleagues you go with your community and as the premier league itself as an institution has grown uh it's become more and more difficult especially under these billionaire owners where it's like a ticket to go and watch an Arsenal game is what, like a hundred pounds, a hundred and twenty-five pounds for like a single ticket or something. Like, it's unbelievably expensive to go and watch a Premier League football team now at this point. But people still seem to be harking back to the the working class roots of football now, which you know they've been silent about that while billionaires were buying their clubs, and now the billionaires are like, actually, we're billionaires and we're going to do billionaire shit. People are like, oh, the working class, the working class. It's like you didn't care about the working class when they were buying Neymar, right? You didn't care when they sold you know, David Beckham for twenty five million pounds. You were like, oh my god, twenty five million pounds. The things we can do with that. You were the person I know who was the most angry about this, right? So, uh, you you so far in the podcast, you have been very contained. I want you to hulk out, unleash everything you sent to me in those voice messages yesterday. I, was like, I can't believe they're doing this stuff. I can't believe it. I'm so angry, you said. Tell me why. What? Why did this drive you up the wall? I'll try and draw on my inner rage from, yeah, and from it yesterday. Starts with, <laughs> it starts with the Glazers, right? Because you, for a long time, have been like, oh, goddamn Glazers, like that. So what? what is it about them and this that really is, you know, driving Gary Neville angry? Gary Neville has had whew, hot takes. Yeah, he has. He, he's been spitting fire or spitting <laughs> pure has. facts recently but yeah as you were saying it's i think the what's really pushed a lot of fans over the edge is kind of the overt like elitism that's been perceived of this league uh because one of the key differences between this league and the existing champions league is that these founding teams would not be able to get relegated or removed from this league and whilst that I, I'm less familiar with American sports but I believe that's a more common uh, structure in American sport whereas particularly in the UK and I think most football leagues in Europe they're built on the foundation of promotion and relegation you do well you move up you don't do as well you move down so 
where a lot of anger has come from this league is the fact that they feel that it's uh, becoming even more of a rich boys club than what it is already, or perhaps they're uh, showing their true colours finally of, of what they've always been. One of the things that you said to me was you you were like they don't care about the game anymore right this shows they don't care about the game they only care about money and they only care about themselves earning more money as the owners of their team right but if i'm the owner of a football team and i have just spent all of this money to buy a premier league football team like of course i want to make the most money out of it like everyone understands that's why you buy a football team it's a, it's a, an investment right so what is it like about like the Glazers? Maybe that it's their history with the club, or why are fans surprised and angry that these billionaires want to make money? They're billionaires. This like is what they do, right? Yeah, and I think as we touched on before, part of it might be the perceived uh, Americanization of of the sport, uh, and I think it kind of uh, plays more on the the fans. Uh, heartstrings of not only have these American owners in the case of is it Stan Kroenke and Arsenal and FSG at Liverpool and the Glazers at Man United not only have they come in and bought these giant English clubs and managed them in a so-so way or seemed to uh, take little interest in the football side of things and as you said very much just bought them as uh, businesses it still kind of remained a bit more of a still felt English or whatever following the same structure whereas perhaps because this seems like it's following more of an American Super Bowl kind of structure I feel part of it is that they feel that it's another further step there taking away the football clubs and football from a British institution, a British cultural thing about club heritage and club loyalty and local fans and as you mentioned before about these socialist working man's clubs that a lot of these clubs were originally built on whilst they are very far away from that even now people still feel that bit of connection to the clubs and this Super League seemed like a very much globalization of these clubs and uh, it no longer being about the fans from Manchester or the fans from London or the fans from Liverpool. It's about focusing on fans of the future, the global fan, global fans. It's almost like it's the brand of Manchester United, the the franchise of Manchester United, not the actual soul of uh, Manchester United. And also a lot of clubs have very storied histories with the Champions League. Um, you know, many clubs in England have won the competition many times. Obviously, Man United, who <laughs> unfortunately are and seem to be some of the main people spearheading this idea the most iconic moments in the club's history the 99 treble 
is synonymous with the Champions League. You have the Busby Babes who died on the way back from a European game. I think it was 58. So there's a lot of history and the creation of this Super League, whilst it was supposedly advertised as a supplementary competition, the logistics of it make it impossible to be able to work side by side on the Champions League. So it feels like they're turning their back on the history of the club and the competitions that they've been a part of to basically be like, okay, well, we're moving on from you now. Thank you for your service. We're moving into the next phase where we just care about international fans and the the global aspect of the sport. And as you think previously said, or as we've touched on, like football has come a long way since those original roots from the clubs and you know you could say that the formation of the Premier League what in 92 contributed to that and football moving from terrestrial television to Sky TV to satellite TV to, to cable TV behind a subscription fee or or a paywall increased the money in the league and again like you said with the increased foreign investment within the league over the last 10 or so 10 15 years with perhaps starting with Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea and then Man United being bought Liverpool being bought Man City being bought more recently and Leicester and there was also rumored few years ago or there seems to be continual rumors of someone wanting to buy Newcastle other shakes being interested in buying Newcastle like as you said with players like Neymar being sold for 220 million the <laughs> it, it's not really a working class man's game anymore uh, but I still think a lot of fans still see it that way you know they they still feel like they have that connection to the club they still feel that they are a part of it and I think that uh, this announcement with the Super League was kind of the final cutting of the cord that kind of anchored those clubs to that history and kind of retained that original spirit and all of the things that the clubs have have gone through to to be in the luxurious position that they are now to be able to consider themselves the best teams or the richest teams in Europe to be able to go ahead and form this uh, super duper league. Um, so yeah, I think that's why a lot of fans were, were quite angry because they feel like it was kind of stealing the soul of their club or kind of they were they were hit very hard with the reality of this is the end goal of why these people purchase the clubs in the first mm. place. You know, they've mm. kind of been biding their time, you know, behind the scenes for, for quite a long time, trying to figure out the best way to monetize these clubs. Because I was speaking to a colleague earlier and he was saying like, historically football clubs haven't been the best investment to make money. Yeah. Which is why probably lots of rich billionaires in the UK generally don't buy them or whatever. It's super rich international investors. Um, so now that they have been bought by 
you know, America known as their, perhaps their, you know, the plan all along is to try and see, okay, how can we turn this into, into a real business, which kind of has, has come out as a bit of a sucker punch or a bit of a, uh, reality bite, let's say to, to a lot of fans in the last 24 hours. And, uh, it's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Well, I know you were one of those people that definitely was that was uh, rubbed the wrong way by it. And I think franchise is really the key word there. And when United became essentially the most well-known sports team in the world, right, in like the late 90s, where you have that David Beckham era, the treble, as you were saying, and they become the most profitable sports team in the world for the next 20 years, even though they get mixed results after a certain amount of time, you know, like the last 10 years for United hasn't exactly been great sports wise, but money wise, they've continued to be, you know, one of the most revenue, uh, one of the teams with the highest revenue in, in sports teams in the world. And what you're saying about the franchise is really interesting. And that kind of marketing side of it, because yesterday uh, I said this to you earlier as well. Um, I was watching the BBC News yesterday and they were talking to fans outside of um, outside of British stadiums and they were protesting and they were like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I can't believe that this has happened. And then um, they were talking to fans in Italy and the Italian fans said, I can't believe this is happening. Then they spoke to a fan in Beijing and the fan in Beijing said, this is fantastic. I can't wait because what I want to do is to stream the best teams against the best teams. Every week I want to see Manchester City versus Barcelona. I want to see Real Madrid against Juventus every week. And this allows me to watch that. And the phrase that was always being used by these owners or that that upset you, I remember, was legacy fans. And you are waving your arms at me in a very excited manner because something has happened. What has happened? Uh, BBC News are just reporting that uh, Executive Vice Chairman of Manchester United, Ed Woodward, is going to apparently step down at the end of 2021. Which is fantastic because he is (laughs) a snake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is that you are very excited about that. Who is Edward Wood? Why is why is this important? Is he an American? Is he a British guy? I believe he is a Brit. But uh, as I said, he's the the vice chairman of Manchester United and he's day to day basically involved for the day to day running of the club. Um, He originally worked for JP Morgan in 2005 oh, and the funders of this super league yes and oh, um, he was a critical component and ally of the glazers in being able to come up with the financial package and financial arrangement that allowed the glazers to purchase manchester united via leverage buyout in I can't even remember when it was, back when they did it. So Ed Woodward, it was basically him it, that allowed... It was his coup. Yeah, him that allowed the Glazers to come up with the necessary financial package to be able to convince uh, the Premier League and the owners of Manchester United at the time to be able to, to purchase them. And he structured the deal and was involved in kind of ever since he's been considered the Glazers right-hand man uh, a 
And I think once, when Ferguson left, and I think David Gill, I believe, was Manchester United's like chief executive at the time. When he left with Ferguson, Ed Woodward became the chief executive, which was very controversial because he is a banker. He has no background mm. in football at all. So there has always been loggerheads between him and the fans of him not understanding football or not being a football person, but being in charge of contracts, transfers, basically everything that goes on at Manchester United. And a lot of teams in more recent years have appointed directors of football or technical directors, which was a role that perhaps didn't exist in the past where you used to have managers like Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger who basically had unilateral control over the entire club. They were the top dog. Whereas now in modern football, it's more common that you have a director of football, sporting director, technical director, it gets called lots of different things. That's kind of your high-level overview and it's his responsibility for kind of creating the vision of the club this is how we want to play this is you know uh what type of football we want to do this is how we're going to run the club and then the manager is below him as a person that's kind of responsible for in a way enacting the vision of the technical director or whatever so you would hope that the technical director would be involved in hiring a manager. You're picking a manager that you think suits the way that your club wants to play or whatever. Um, and Manchester United have refused to appoint such an individual as it's been perceived that Edward Wood has not wanted to relinquish his overriding control over Manchester United, which has caused a lot of... Uh, mm, Caused, caused a lot of uh, frustration in uh, yeah. in Manchester United fans. Uh, so the, now he's gone. He's gone. Do, are fans going to celebrate? Oh, yes. Twitter is <laughs> incredibly excited because he's probably the most hated man in Manchester United because you never... The Glazers don't get involved in a day-to-day yeah, basis. Right. So Woodward is the, the devil <laughs> at the top of Manchester United and specifically because it seems like Man United had been heavily involved in the creation of this Super League, his connection with JP Morgan. It's, you know, he, he again, seems like the uh, the boogeyman. So it's... So uh, that's such an, it's such an American position to have as well, that technical director. And all the American teams have a general manager, right? And the general manager is your guy who, like you are saying, hires your coach, and then hires the team, deals with the contracts, does all of that stuff so that the coach doesn't have to do it. And like um, Moneyball, for example, the amazing movie Moneyball, you know, like Brad Pitt is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics in that like the main character is the guy who's going around, doing the contracts, doing all of this stuff. And it's a very important role in American football, but not just, sorry, in American sports. I don't mean, but also in the NFL and, and things like that. But to kind of tie this back into what we were talking about earlier on with like the um the franchising of of the sports like in american sports it is 
And I think this is what the American owners don't quite understand about the historic institutions in the UK and in Europe is like, if we look at uh, the Utah Jazz, for example, uh, which is the, the basketball team in America, the Utah Jazz. Uh, I don't know how much you know about Utah, but it's famous for like two things. One of them is Salt Lakes and the other one is Mormonism. And uh, neither one of those involve jazz in any way. And the reason that Utah has the Utah Jazz is because they used to be the New Orleans Jazz or the like the Louisiana Jazz or whatever, where jazz fucking came from. But the franchise moved from Louisiana to Utah, where there is no jazz whatsoever. But they kept the franchise name, which is the Jazz. And that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, the LA Rams, for example, who are owned by one of these big six, uh, these big six competitors, the LA Rams moved to St. Louis and then they were the St. Louis Rams. And then a few years ago, they moved back to Los Angeles again. And now they're the LA Rams again. And I think in American sports, the concept of the franchise is far more important than its location. Like you could just move your franchise wherever you want. Like, none of them have to be in any of the specific places. They move them all the time. But can you imagine saying, well, I own Manchester United and the Red Devils logo is is really good. But Manchester City are kind of the dominant Manchester team now. So actually, we're going to move to Paris and we're going to be Paris United. And we're going to take all of the staff and all the players and we're just going to move to another city. It it just it couldn't work in um, in in football. And that kind of globalization, brand recognition, like the NBA in going back to the to the jazz and and to, uh, to to basketball and stuff in general, the NBA has already made that leap that the Super League wants to make to globalizing its fan base, right? The globalize like as as we know, having lived in China, China is the NBA. Or rather, the NBA is its Chinese fans. Like, like that's that's where their money comes from. And I think it was it actually was the general manager of the Houston Rockets that a few years ago said, "Oh, we should stand with Hong Kong about this. What's going on in Hong Kong?" And the NBA was shut down in China, and the NBA had to say, "Now, don't you say anything more? Don't you say anything about what's going on?" Because they had they had taken that globalized step, and that is, you know, making that leap to profits comes with costs. And maybe that's the lesson that these guys are learning now, right? If you want to take that big global step, um, you're going to suffer for it. And in this case, you don't suffer from um, the effects of dealing with another country. You suffer for the effects of dealing with your own country because they don't understand, maybe. Yeah, and that that's another criticism that's long been levied at at least more familiar with the United side of things, but another thing that's always been levied at the the ownership, the Glazers at United, is that they don't understand the club or football or they're not interested in in doing in doing so. Uh, th- there was, again, another quote from, I think it was Joel Glazer from several years ago, saying something along the lines of, Oh, it took me two years to try and understand the offside rule, and I'm still not sure I understand it. <laughs> um, and it, it it's that kind of 
distance or disassociation that these owners are perceived to have uh, that a lot of fans struggle with. And another point that a lot of... uh, I heard a lot of fans talking about that was a concern was this kind of franchise concept of moving matches outside of Manchester, basically. Like, if you're playing Barcelona or Real Madrid or Juventus every week, where are these matches going to be played? Or are these away matches? They're all going to be, you know, in in different countries. And admittedly, the Champions League is that, but... uh, But that's a special occasion. Yes, it's right. not as it's not as frequent, but also the concern was that that would escalate further. That are you then going to get Manchester United versus Barcelona in Utah, or are you going to get mm-hmm. Manchester United versus uh, Juventus in Dubai, or are you going to get you know Chelsea versus Manchester United in the Super League being held in Hong Kong or something, you know? And how are fans? you know, the local fans supposed to be able to afford and attend these matches that are all over the world because the fans want to attend, but obviously the owners don't care whether they can attend or not because that's not the fans that they're trying to appeal to. They're trying to, they're not trying to appeal to, uh, there was rumours or reports going around that they were referring to kind of existing fans or older fans as legacy fans, that they weren't interested in appealing to these legacy fans because kind of they're already there. They're already secured, almost. They need to focus on the next generation of fans, the future fans, the global fans. So, you know, it didn't seem outside the realm of possibility to have a Manchester a Manchester derby, Manchester United versus Manchester City, being held in Paris or in Spain, or in New York, or, you know, which, again, the the thought of that angered a lot of fans, and myself, not that I'm one that actually attends many matches, but it, it still feels like, again, it's further removing the club from its roots, and from, you know, its local Manchester location, if you're talking about Manchester, to, you know, to this more more global approach. And I don't know exactly uh, how it works with American sports. If you get a lot of traveling fans or if franchises move around, fans are happy to, you know, travel long distances to uh, a new city or whether, you know, just the people in the new city will just pick up and be like, oh, okay, we have a new franchise in town. I guess I better support them. Um, but that perhaps touches on another thing is that fans don't, most fans, a lot of fans, don't change their allegiances in football as the stadiums don't move <laughs> or whatever, or uh, a franchise isn't going to move to a different town. You support your boyhood club or you like myself, you pick a team when you're younger and then you, you know, m- most most fans, obviously, we like to say a few <laughs> flip-flop fans might, or glory-hunting fans, not to say that it doesn't happen, but, you know, most fans like to stick with their club and like to 
follow their club and be able to to go to the home games so you know if there are matches being held in different countries that that is another sense of that you know turning their back on the on the home fans and their particular supporters groups for various clubs or for Manchester United at least that uh attend every single game and are responsible for a lot of the chants and the singing that uh goes on within the stadium there's you know there's a whole singing section uh, at Old Trafford that's responsible for part of creating the atmosphere for that ground and again that's something that you can't necessarily have if you're moving everything to uh to an international level and uh yes i i can imagine the american owners being quite frustrated with that because if you look at like the nfl again for example like if you're the green bay packers in wisconsin on the basically on the canadian border and then you have to go and play the miami dolphins well you're going to the airport and you're flying 3000 miles to play your game once a week you know and it's like america's so big that's just what you do. And they have conferences set up so the teams should be closer together. But because the franchises move, they end up not being as close as that. Like, they're supposed to be in East Coast and West Coast. But then people started swapping and changing. So, uh, But I can imagine, like, the American owners being like, yeah, well, stop your complaining. Because, you know, one week we're playing in the, you know, the frozen tundra of Wisconsin. And then we're down in Jacksonville north florida where it's you know back home it was minus 20 degrees now it's plus 30 degrees and we still have to go out there and play and i can see exactly as you're saying like the traveling fans is not such a big thing again because you're fans of the franchise more than fans of the team and like if manchester united go manchester united i think is a a, not necessarily a great example because everywhere that manchester united go they have fans But if you pick, like, Spurs, for example, if Spurs go and play in Moscow, there's probably not that many Tottenham Hotspur fans popping out uh, to Moscow, Russia, being like, uh, oh, da, comrade, Tottenham Hotspur, da, da, da. No, but if United go, you know, it's it's United. That's an impeccable Russian accent, I must say. Thank you. After 18 months of living in Moscow, that's what I picked up. Da, da, Tottenham Hotspur, da. So maybe they do have more fans there than, than I thought. But again, I can imagine those American only just been like, I just, I just don't understand what the problem is. Because again, one of the big criticisms levied against this idea was that it ruins competition, right? The thing that people like about football is you start off, my favourite team, as we well know, is Bath City, who are my boyhood team for, for my entire life. Local team, Bath City, they're, in, you know, they're non-league, which means... Uh, what what are the leagues in the UK? The Premier League, the Championship, the... League one. One, two, three? Conference, I think. Conference, yeah. And then underneath all of that, there's Bath City, right? They're not even a, they're not even a league. But you go there, there's like 1,000 people at every game, at the, at the maximum. But that's not the point. The point is you go there because they're your local team and what you want to see is for them to move up from the non-league into the league can you imagine and the amount of time that people spend playing 
champion football championship manager games like we have done with all of our life basically is because you are trying to make that progress right you are trying to progress from the lower leagues to the higher leagues to win the champions league that's the apex of your football manager game because it's an accomplishment but the criticism leveled against the super league is every team that has bought into the super league doesn't have to compete they are already there they have they have secured their place simply by being rich enough to be there and that's anti-competitive. It means the teams won't focus on the actual competitive leagues because they're going to get less money for stakes they don't really care about anymore. Like, why bother wasting all of your talented players um, on the Premier League to get into the Champions League where you're earning more money in the Super League than you are in the other two combined? Like, what's the point of competition anymore? But if I'm the American owner, I say, well, actually, in the NBA... Or let's take the NFL. We have our 32... We have our 32 teams. The point of the NFL isn't that somebody's going to go up and down. The point of it is to compete for that trophy at the end, right? It's going to be the same teams every year unless they move or they rebrand or whatever. But the point is the competition for that trophy at the end of the season. And everyone's fighting for the same trophy... And also, because there's only 32 teams, the owners have control, a certain amount of control, over the league itself. Like, the owners in the NFL are very important. But I think the owners in, like, UEFA, for example, like, UEFA doesn't give a shit what the owners thought. And that's why the owners have had to go and feel like they've had to go and do this thing themselves anyway, right? Because... The owners were like, this is what we want to do. Your wafer said, no, you have to do what we say you have to do. The owners were like, well, f- you know, we'll go and make our own thing then. right? We're, we're American. We know how to do this because we do it very profitably on, you know, in our own country. So we're just going to come and we're going to come and do it over here. And we as football fans are obsessed with the idea of competition on the pitch. But if it's like the competition of organizations like there is no other organization if you don't like fifa well you can't go outside of fifa if you don't like uefa you can't go outside of uefa say you're manchester united and you don't like the way that the premier league is operating what are you gonna do you know there's, there's nothing you can do about it and they are capitalists thriving on competition stuck inside an organizational monopoly and they've done what Americans do, and you know. So, what is it about actual competition that has you so like enraged over the Super League? Like they're just they're just doing what what teams do all around the world. Why is it? different right why does it matter with these these are the elite teams of europe like why can't they just do whatever they want yeah so the the point of competition is is very important and as you said and as we touched on earlier the concept of promotion and relegation is bread and butter like it's a core foundation of of european football which again might be something that is not so familiar to uh the american owners and another thing that kind of riled a lot of uh, fans, particularly in the UK, is the uh, the clubs that are involved in this, whilst 
yes, you could say that they do have the largest reputations in European football. Not all of them have been particularly successful uh, as of late. A lot of them are teams that have had success 10 years ago that have maybe struggled more recently. Um, I have a picture that actually you sent me earlier uh, about league titles that uh, some of the clubs that are involved in this league have won. So, like, Arsenal haven't won a league title since 2004. Manchester United haven't won a league title since 2013. Spurs have never won the Premier League. They won the (laughs) old First Division in 1961. Uh, You know, Inter Milan haven't won a league title in Italy since 2011. Oh, sorry, AC Milan. Inter Milan haven't won one since 2010. So, like... Almost half of these clubs, and and also Manchester United haven't won a Champions League in ages. Arsenal haven't, have never won a Champions League. Tottenham have never won a Champions League. Uh, Inter Milan, AC Milan haven't won Champions, or actually Mourinho won one with Inter Milan. They've won one in like the last 10 or so years. Like, So these aren't necessarily the best clubs in Europe at the moment they are just historically the richest or historically the most successful and one of the key components of the current champions league the elite european competition is that whilst it's it still has its own flaws it's still somewhat based on merit you still have to perform well in your domestic league to gain entry which is why the likes of Tottenham, Arsenal, AC Milan, Inter Milan, you know, have not been present in the Champions League uh, for, you know, many of the the previous seasons because they haven't been good enough. And a lot of people do see the Champions League is supposed to be a league of champions, which even from its inception, it isn't. (laughs) You know, I think there are a lot of people that would like to even see the Champions League reduced to make it more of an elite competition. But instead, it's being expanded probably to try and, you know, satiate to some degree these these larger clubs. But the, the fact that a lot of these teams, you know, aren't very good at the moment. Arsenal are currently ninth in the league. I think Tottenham are currently seventh in the Premier League or something like that. Chelsea, Liverpool are fifth or maybe sixth. You know, they're, they're as of their current league standings, only two out of the six English clubs would actually qualify for the Champions League next season. So guaranteeing these teams a place in a league gets rid of that sense of competition, that risk and reward for performing well. And not only that, the the European Super League was also excluding a lot of other clubs from different nations that have very storied history in top European competitions. Clubs like Ajax and... Uh, Clubs like, well, <laughs> Bayern Munich and PSG, who just flat out refused to uh, 
take part altogether. But you've got clubs like Porto, who won the Champions League. Feyenoord, you've got like Celtic, Rangers. You have even clubs like Aston Villa, Nottingham Forest, who I think, you know, many, many years ago won the competition. So I think Pep Guardiola came out today and was asking, you know, as is a lot of fans have, like, why do Tottenham get included, but Ajax don't, when Ajax have a far greater European history and have been far more successful in Europe over the years than what Tottenham have. So it is that further kind of example of just rich people buying themselves into an exclusive club, which, uh, again, I think a lot of people saw as... Uh, showing the true face of greed of of a lot of these uh, companies. What companies? Uh, clubs. Well, no, it's not even the clubs. It's the owners of the clubs. Yeah, yeah I need to make yeah. sure any time that I mention that it's either Manchester United or, or Liverpool doing this, I think it's wrong to say that it's the club doing this because largely it's not because it came out today that most of the players, the managers, the staff at these clubs also had no idea that this was going to happen until late Sunday evening, you know, just before the original announcement was made. So this has very much been a decision that's been driven by the very top owners of these clubs without the consent or advice or uh, conversations with a lot of the people that they're supposed to represent, which again kind of rubbed people the wrong way. And Another interesting point that might be worth touching on is the relation to COVID and and the pandemic. And like, was it Florentino Perez came out and said basically that they're doing this because COVID has impacted, you know, the finances in football and they want more money. Basically, come out couldn't be more clearly and said that, you know, they're basically doing this because they need more money. And I think a lot of people have a bit of an issue with that relation to COVID in the way that they are kind of using this a pandemic as as a reason leverage. or yeah as as leverage this you know horrible thing that's you know <laughs> taken so many lives and that we're still trying to get over at the moment trying to you know use that in a way as a as a pawn or as a catalyst to try to you know make more money for themselves as a result of it which i think again is something else that that doesn't sit well with a lot of people instead of trying to again like help share the wealth out help everyone recover from this or you know help their local communities (laughs) in in these areas to to help you know recover from this pandemic it's like no, we need more money for ourselves and our clubs because our businesses aren't doing as well. And at the end of the day, we're businessmen and we're here to make money for our businesses. So, you know, we need to do what's best for for our business, which a business is business, but doesn't mean people like it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, again, where we come back into this, this, era, this era of Roman Abramovich and the billionaire owners taking over is the reason that the financial fair play rules came in, right? Once billionaires started buying the clubs, it was, 
those clubs who have the richest owners buy the best players who win the Champions League, who then earn the most money, who buy the best players to win the Champions League, to buy the best players to win. And then the problem you have with the Premier League now, as we, you know, we were talking about at the beginning, even Leicester is owned by a billionaire. Right. So. At what point is football not this business. The only difference is, is that these businessmen have decided, you know what, fuck it. They they kept us within these rules. We're the biggest clubs in the world, right? We're, we're the biggest clubs in the world, and we have just lost, like Man United just lost a hundred million pounds of revenue compared to last year. We don't want to risk losing another hundred million pounds because what the big clubs do is they use their expected revenue of, say, 600 million pounds to spend 200 million pounds to buy Neymar. So you're spending perhaps, what, a third of your total year revenue on a single person. And the staff costs at football clubs are so crazy. Again, American owners will suffer with this because American sports have salary caps. So in America, the NFL, for example, says you cannot spend more than X amount each team. So Manchester United could not spend more money than West Bromwich Albion. Are West Brom in the Premier League at this point? Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, I feel like they could be, but they might not. He says frantically, yes, they're second from bottom. Fantastic. Well, that is, it would not be the case in the NFL, necessarily. Because in the NFL, you cannot buy or sell players. You can only trade players because they have a draft system. You cannot buy or sell players. There is a salary cap, so each team can only pay the same amount of money distributed amongst their team. And then you come over to... British football to European football to you know to our real football and it's like your costs are so exponentially high this is why Arsenal under Arsene Wenger didn't fucking buy anybody because the owners took over the team and were like wait we have to do what to win they're like this isn't why we bought the team we bought it to earn money not to you know and the teams operate at a loss based on the wealth and value of their owners which is absolutely insane and it's why as we've spoken about ourselves why moving to a german 51 percent fan owned model that's that stuff will still happen because rich people can still buy up the remaining 49 percent driving up share prices driving up the value of the club giving the clubs more money but that within a set rules of financial fair play like it's absolutely insane what clubs are able to get away with. And the only reason that fans, that the fans of these clubs are now upset about it is because it's like, oh, yeah, but I can't travel to Juventus every week to watch a match. I know that's not really it. That's me being, you know, that's me being uh, flippant. But you, you know what I mean? Like people, pro- United fans always had a problem with the Glazers, right? But Chelsea fans, nah, their relationship with Abramovich was like, well, as long as we can still buy players like what the fuck do we care right but why is this a who watches the world cup issue right where does the world cup come into all of this because it's the euros coming up like this is a, a giant middle finger to uefa to fifa how do they respond what does it have to do with the world cup at all 
Yeah. Well, I just quickly want to say a, a point that you mentioned. It was rumoured or reported, I believe, in the Telegraph earlier today, actually, before everything started to crumble apart, that supposedly there was going to be a salary cap uh, mm. in this new Super League where it said uh, only 55% uh, of revenue on salaries, agents, fees and transfers. Uh, there you go. That's the Americans yeah, for you. Which a lot of fans instantly went to say, well, does that mean the other 45% is just going in the pockets of the owners? You know, is that just another way to secure even more money for, you know, the the businessmen that are, that are running it? But to uh, move on to the, the point you were making that uh, about its potential... Uh, ramifications for the rest of Europe as we mentioned to go back over old ground very briefly but as it was supposed to be a supplemental competition the logistics of it made it impossible to be able to coexist with the existing European competitions and formats so as such it was kind of seen as a replacement to the existing it was a coup yeah a replacement to the existing Champions League and kind of yeah a bit of a hostile takeover so to speak, which obviously UEFA and FIFA as being, you know, like the controlling bodies of uh, European and world football and in control of, you know, the the Champions League, it looked like if this went ahead that it was basically going to cripple and destroy uh, the Champions League because there was concerns that, you know, all the focus would be put where the money is maybe justifiably to this super league so all the teams would you know they they either either they wouldn't be able to organize it it wouldn't work logistically or they wouldn't care about it because they would put out a second team because they would want to save the best players to play in the 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 super league matches so as a way to try and combat this one of the first things that was then rumoured and then was kind of confirmed by uh, the the heads of UEFA was that any any players, yeah, I think it was on a player level, any players that were at one of these clubs that was involved in the Super League would be banned from European competitions and also banned from uh, international competitions, the European Cup and the World Cup as well. Uh, and then there, w- there was a lot of back and forth then between uh, Florentino Perez, the, the head of uh, this ESL, coming out and being very bullish and saying that, no, there's they don't have a leg to stand on legally, basically. They can't ban players from, you know, international tournaments. And we've already got legislation in place that protects us against them trying to ban players from, you know, international competitions. But then you had, you know, UEFA and FIFA saying, nope, anybody that takes place, we're going to ban them. So it looked like it was heading towards a potential you know, dispute between this new organization and the existing organization of if you want to be part of this new money Super League, then, well, up you, we're not going to let you take part in the World (laughs) Cup, which essentially is a pretty big bargaining chip 
in in the world mm. of football being one of the most popular sporting events in the world and being most footballers dream is to play in the world cup you know that that's what really makes players legends and cements their history in the game is how well do you perform in the world cup you know did you win the world cup that's always the connection with Pele and why Pele has always been regarded as one of the best players is his connection and association with the World Cup and winning it and his performances in them. So to potentially ban players from the World Cup or ban players from the European competitions would have been huge, you know, and unfortunately kind of very unfair on the players that are kind of stuck in the middle of this situation that they didn't vote for this, they weren't involved in, you know, the discussions of this, but now they've been thrown into this situation where potentially, you know, they're being pulled from both sides. Do they follow the money with their club or do they want to, you know, do they want to represent their national team uh at the World Cup. So it looked like it was heading for a, a very messy kind of legal dispute potentially over, you know, is this possible? Can they ban them? Can't they ban them? Are players going to make decisions? What decisions are players going to make? Um, but luckily, well, yeah, fortunately, it, it seems like, as we mentioned earlier with the seeming collapse of this league as we started recording that that might not be a situation that we have to have to worry about any longer but um it would have been quite a unprecedented and historic kind of moment if you know all of a sudden because it's largely all the top teams and so like a lot of the nation's best players would then you know potentially not be able to represent their countries i think we were speaking well, it earlier, would have just, it... It would have just it would have just guaranteed a world cup final of france versus germany <laughs> wouldn't it? every every single yeah. year because like all the german players not all of them but the vast majority play at uh, bayern munich and Borussia dortmund yeah who like have both refused to join because they are 51% owned by the fans and all football fans around the world are unanimously like, this is insane. So they're not going to join. And then Paris Saint-Germain, and this is the point I kind of want to get into with FIFA, is Paris Saint-Germain are owned by the Qataris, by a Qatari investment fund. Yes, the Qatari investment fund. Yeah, the sovereign wealth fund of Qatar, or however it's... Yes. Correctly said. And... Yeah, and they are also the hosts of the World Cup next year. Yes. So no German team is going to join this thing because the fans, football fans, despise this concept. Paris Saint-Germain aren't going to join because they are financially invested in FIFA and the success of the World Cup. As a country, the country of Qatar cares about the country of Qatar more than it cares about the European Super League. Right. Yeah. So they are they are the only team in the world who will not financially benefit from it. So they're not going to do it. So what makes FIFA any different? 
to the ESL stuff. FIFA now have been touted as like, yeah, FIFA. Like, no football fan in the world likes FIFA other than the fact that it's on the front of your fucking PlayStation game. Right? That's what people like about FIFA. What people hate about FIFA is that for every World Cup, they go into a country and they rape it. And I don't use that word lightly. I use that to mean that's literally what they do. Like uh, Brazil, for example, I was bringing this up to you. Brazil famously, because of historic football violence, which every country has, football's not, football's not perfect, historic football violence in Brazil there is no alcohol allowed to be consumed in Brazilian football stadiums. But, Steve, Budweiser is a sponsor of FIFA and the World Cup. And when the World Cup was held in Brazil, FIFA forced Brazil to change their legislation to allow alcohol consumption in the stadium so that Budweiser could be drank. FIFA are criminals. Famously criminals. Seb Blatter is probably the most infamous sports figure in in football history for literally being corrupt. And what we have here is a bunch of corrupt billionaires fighting another group of corrupt billionaires for who can be the most corrupt. And what you said about the players, I think, was a really good point. You've got these players stuck in the middle. But FIFA are acting like the mafia. They're like, "Uh, if you go and you join this European Super League... Maybe you don't wake up tomorrow. Nice, nice club you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah, they. It is amazing how kind of FIFA and UEFA have gone from like zero to hero, or from the from <laughs> yeah. the villains, from the most despised, yeah, yeah from villain to hero. They've yeah, really yeah, had yeah. like quite a dramatic like character arc over the last like yeah. two days. It's yeah, it's been quite remarkable because. As you said, FIFA are far, far from from the P in perfect, let alone the the other <laughs> letters in it. Like, yeah, the the corruption in FIFA has been ridiculous for for mm. decades, and it's just I heard somebody else use the phrase just finally a bigger bully has come along and been able to you know well almost almost uh out bully them basically as and they you know fifa and uefa do have a monopoly on well they they are the overriding controlling body of yeah. of you know european football and you know the bidding process for world cups is well, probably an absolute sham, you know. Well, as we all know why Qatar is holding the next World Cup, right? We all know it. Yeah. We all know. Like, Russia holding the level. We all know. We know why they're hosting it. And yet we've allowed this to continue. So when these group of... The only reason these guys can do it is because they're American. And the Americans don't care about football, right? So because they don't care about it, they're like, eh, FIFA, so what? Who cares? What, you're going to come all the way to to Boston, to Fenway Park. You're going to bring your Italian FIFA mafia shit to Boston? I don't think so. If they were European, that you wouldn't be able to do it, I don't think. It's because they're owned by foreign owners that they can do it, right? Yeah, and I think it is a little bit of, as I think I mentioned to you, like, 
boiling the water whilst the frog's in it. Like, as yes, this kind of corruption yeah. with UEFA is just kind of been in the background and escalated slowly throughout the years. It's kind of everybody has kind of got a little bit accustomed to it. And mm. it's like... It's two frogs in two pots of boiling water. <laughs> in one pot, you've got FIFA, UEFA, and their rampant corruption. And in the other pot, you've got billionaires slowly buying European football. And then both of these frogs have realised, well, maybe they have, they, they're, they're about to jump, and they've hit each other. <laughs> <laughs> they've leapt out of their pot. Or they're, they're boiling together, and this is, you know... Yeah. This is the frog soup at the end of it. Yeah, so I think it's that, that slow kind of gradual, well, hmm, mm. descent into corruption that, that UEFA's had. It's kind of everybody, I think, has just been a little bit like, that's the status quo, so we kind of, we know it's bad, but we don't think we can do anything about it. And as it's kind of built up over time, I think it's kind of been able to stay in the shadows a little bit more whereas maybe stereotypically in a true american fashion this super league is just kind of like come out of the gates at a thousand miles an hour making all the noise and like being very bold and making its presence known straight away and not trying to perhaps hide its intentions and you know try and be like UEFA and, or FIFA and be like, oh no, there's no corruption here. Don't look at us. <laughs> like, you know, the, the Glazers and Florentino Perez have just been like, boom, in your face. You know, here we come yeah. with, we want money, like, in a way, like, what a fair play for them for being upfront about what they want. Well, at least they're yeah. honest. But yeah. I think it's, it's that initial shock of, uh, the boldness of it that mm. that has the arrogance yeah, the arrogance and the boldness of it which is what's offended people so vehemently so quickly that on the other hand the opposite approach of fifa is perhaps what has allowed them to get away with it for so long but another negative uh, of fifa that i've uh seen being spoken about a lot is that as soon as this was announced, all of a sudden FIFA was very quick to be like, okay, we're going to ban them, we're going to kick them out. Action was very fast. But on topics of racism, inequality, they're very slow. We've had kick it out campaigns and, you know, it seems to have taken a lot of effort to try and promote this kind of action and response. But when something is come basically for their throat and now their lives are in danger their bottom line. All, yeah. all of a sudden yeah. they found the ability to act very fast and make statements very quickly and, and produce action very fast which um i said whilst uefa is still kind of looking like heroes a little bit that is a conversation that that i've heard uh also being raised as as part of this you know, same conversation as people are well aware that it's kind of picking your poison or maybe it's better the devil, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of thing. Like, you know, we know it's not perfect, but we know what we're getting with this situation. Whereas with you, we don't know what we're getting and we don't like the sound of what it and also nobody likes change. 
So yeah, yeah. The... There's a great there's a great uh, Lois Black sketch. He's an American comedian, and he's talking about the Iraq War. And he said, "What the the real fuck up that the American the Bush government made with the Iraq War was that they didn't spend more time trying to convince everyone." To hate the Iraqis. He said, "If the, I don't care if the war is right or if the war is wrong. You're supposed to put the wall over my eyes and convince me that they're the bad guys. So when we go to war, I'm like, hoorah, America. But instead, you didn't even bother. You just invaded it and now we're all pissed off at you. And I feel that this is that similar kind of thing. Where it's like, they could have, <clears throat> they could have started with a... Because of COVID and everything that's been lost this year, we're going to do a, a, 20, a, a 2021-22 European Super League for a season just to raise funds for all the teams that suffered because of COVID. We're going to do it for one season. We, as the, the, these, uh, you know, these top 20 teams, the, the richest teams in the world, we're not going to take any money from it. What we're going to do is we're going to do it for one season and then all of the money is going to go to the lower league teams that suffered because of COVID. Then, 2022-23, you go, we're back for the Super League, bitches, and this time the money's all ours. <laughs> and people would probably have been on board because they saw it one year and they supported it because they knew where the money was going. But instead, it was like, you know what? Oh, we need money. We lost money. We, we we regularly operate on a loss, but we operate on a profitable loss, if that makes sense. But what's happened this year is we've operated on a loss. Then we've lost an extra hundred million because of COVID. So now we're actually operating on a loss loss. So we need to do something about it. And it's like nobody, no one in the world of football is thinking, I, you know, I feel really sorry for the Glazers, actually, that they lost money on Manchester United this year. Like, it's a real shame because, you know, I'm a real fan of the organisation. Like, nobody's thinking that in the world. No one has their backs because they've screwed fans for so long. You know, Dom, I've always been a big advocate of foreplay. And I feel that that is what... <laughs> is missing here we needed 12 months of foreplay right both yes pro yes. super league and anti fifa because th yes. it's there on a plate for you right like yeah. you want to disrespect fifa you've got like an entire well, i could make a very rude reference but treasure trove of like potential ammunition that you could yeah. be did you know they're using illegal labor to build the qatari stadiums for the world cup in 2022 like uh, people are literally dying building those stadiums and fifa are allowing this to happen we people you should be against fifa and be towards us the owners who are going to do things for you, the fans. We're going to give you the games you want. Exactly. Do 12 months of, like, buttering me up, you know, like, sext me for a little bit first. <laughs> then invite... Send some nudes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Invite me on a few dates, you know. Yeah. And then serenade me. Get, like, make me aware of what's happening. Prepare me for this experience. Don't just, like... Yeah. You know, don't fist me straight <laughs> off. <laughs> well, yeah, I was trying to think of a more elegant way to say it, but that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, you know, and that's what they've done with the Super League. It's like, bam, here is an incredibly large implement. 
Whereas, you know, you just needed a little bit of love for six months. And, and I think they could have convinced a lot of a lot of people, you know, just go on like a six month charm offensive, then a six month yeah. anti FIFA offensive. And, you know, I, I'm sure that you could have wooed a lot of people or at least softened the blow, you know. But no, they, as I kind of mentioned earlier, they, they came at it like a bull out of a china shop. No one was expecting this announcement. There wasn't even that I saw any, like, rumoured murmurings that you're like, oh, you know, this this might happen. It was all of a sudden at, like, nine o'clock, it was like, oh, something might happen, America something time. might happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden at, like, midnight, you know, in the UK time all of the clubs suddenly released this same copy and paste statement, which kind of, you know, blindsided absolutely everyone. So it's like, as you like, uh, made reference to with the, the, the war quote, it's like, if they'd marketed it better or just like prepared everybody for it, got people on board first, you know, then I think, you know, even just, Tell the bloody players and the managers, like, mm. you know, get some support so you're not perceived as doing this so on your own. Then, you know, I think they could have, they would have had a much easier job uh, actually trying to to get this, to get this whole scenario over the line. But uh, mm. should we talk about what is actually happening with it? right now or is there anything you well, want to bring up well i mean up? by i say by the time we talk about what's happening now and this is released things will have changed like as you True. said like things have changed oh, just over the the hour or so that we've been talking like we we started man city have just withdrawn chelsea are currently playing yes so they're not going to withdraw they might withdraw well i th- i think i think it was maybe it was announced before i don't know if an official statement came out but there was right. certainly strong hints uh, before yeah. the match that was suggested that they are going to pull out. I, I think I saw uh, apparently yeah. um, Roman Abramovich was calling a meeting tonight or something, and there were also reports that Arsenal were going to pull out, and it, it seems like... Uh, oh, yeah, so at the moment... BBC are just reporting that Man City have withdrawn from the European Super League, Chelsea set to follow. So it looks... Doesn't this, doesn't this just feel like the perfect thing to happen to football for like the Brexit COVID era, right? Isn't this like, this is essentially Brexit, but for football teams. Yeah, and then you've got the rest of the the rest of the world be like, "What are you doing? Are you insane?" And they're like, "Eh, we're, we're going to be all right on our own." And then actually, it turns out they're not going to be all right on their own. But also, it's like the the COVID thing. It just it just fits in there with that, and it's so perfect for you know for bringing back who watches the World Cup because it's billionaires using their money and their influence to overwhelm and overpower the interests of the working class. And internationally as well, which brings me on to the final thing I want to discuss, which is FIFA are corrupt. <laughs> some good, some good hand gestures you got going. Thumbs down for FIFA. This audio, for this audio, for this audio medium, yeah. Thumbs down for FIFA. Thumbs down for the European Super League. 
we can't just let things continue as they are, right? The problem, the problem isn't that these billionaires have decided that they're going to jerk off into everyone's faces. The fact is we knelt down for them in the first place, right? So what are the changes that we can make to, like, save football? Because at the moment, it's already lost. As you said, this, as you said before, this, the reason the fans are upset is because they've just realised what they've lost. So what do you change, right? What do you reform to get football back? Yeah, but hopefully this is going to act as the wake-up call that football in this country needed that, again, has has been slowly <laughs> maybe again to borrow the same frog in the boiling water analogy that's you know been happening to the league over the past 15 to 20 years i don't know exactly when roman abramovich did buy chelsea i think it maybe was early 2000s or something that you know in a way they made a rod for their own backs in in the sense that you know they they allowed the commercialization the <laughs> i was going to say the business businessification of these yeah. uh, football clubs to happen by allowing these foreign investors and you know it's kind of rumbled along somewhat maintaining a, a status quo you have a new club be bought they become successful and then a few years later another club gets bought and they become successful and they try and ease the fans by trying to do various like local schemes and you know try to show that they do care for the local community but i i think well hopefully you know th this is going to be the wake-up call that you know their their intentions aren't pure and no matter how many or how many millions they spend on buying new players the end of the day like you said it's still trying to run it as a business to to make profit so this may might be the time or hopefully can be you know the the catalyst for some actual change now i believe in parliament earlier today there was talks of some sort of independent review into uh football finance or Oh, they've got a bloody independent review for everything. Yeah. But at, at least that's some form of action. Like, would you would you support, like, a Bundesliga-style model? Well, like, cause that's what I said earlier yeah. on about Bath City, my local team, of course, just to brag about them for a second <laughs> while, while I have the chance. They are 54% owned by the fans, Bath City. And you can, if you would be interested, you can join for £5 a year. Um... Would you support that sort of thing for the Premier League as well? Like fan ownership of of the teams? I think that's the most obvious, you know, model to, to use as an example. And I believe that um, that it, it is a model that um, they're supposedly exploring in this review. I was trying to frantically see if I could uh, find a news article about it, but uh, I was uh, struggling to... <laughs> try and find the uh the the article but yeah i think that is a good model because it still gives the opportunity for rich people to invest mm. in the club uh yeah. to you know in an attempt to make them more successful and potentially through being successful i'm no business expert 
but I would assume they would still be able to make money out of 49% or, you know, they would still be able to take dividends from the shares that they own and better performance on the pitch, more consistent qualification to the top competitions, winning the top competitions, more prize money only brings more money into the club to, you know, allow you to make money off of it. And, but, retaining some sort of you know fan input keeps the clubs as a more local entity you know it it gives fans that connection to the club back that sense of involvement that you know sense of uh almost you know harking back to the original founding you know socialist kind of uh, working class men's clubs that everybody still tries to hold dear but as we've said has kind of definitely eroded you know over time to the point where they think it's there but as we've mm. seen you know in the last few days ultimately mm. it's not so I think it you know I think it's a very good example that you know could be followed to allow uh more control you know and better regulation if if nothing else over you know uh over what happens with the clubs and at least if something like this you know if fans vote for something like this then you know <laughs> at least what 51% of 51 <laughs> 1% people would have would have wanted it to happen so you know, I think it's definitely would be a step in the right direction. You know, I think even within that German model, I think uh, it it's not necessarily perfect. Or I know that kind of the uh, RB Leipzig, their the way that their club is run or owned, I think kind of stretches the the boundaries of that that system a little bit so I don't think it's necessarily a perfect system but it's definitely <laughs> more secure than what we have at the moment and it's the reason why you know the German clubs Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, RB Leipzig aren't involved or weren't involved in the creation of this you know Super League or weren't part of the founding clubs of of this Super League because it wasn't allowed to happen, you know, and and it's not as if it's hurt their success either. You know, Bayern Munich just won the Champions League. <laughs> yeah. They're 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 the top team in Europe, the reigning team in Europe. Yeah, right? and they've so won the Bundesliga it's not for as like if... the last how God knows how many. I think like eight nine years in a row now as well. See, uh, yeah, yeah. See, that may be a criticism of that kind of ownership. Is that once a team is dominating and on top. You, there's no chance for like a Leicester, for example, where an outside billionaire comes in and just helps you win the league in like four or five seasons. Yeah. But I guess they do, it doesn't overtake fan ownership. It's just that the fans continue to own more. more the value of the club goes yeah. up. So the fans own more, even if the outside investment is... So it still potentially works, but... in this, But the same thing of what you were saying there, that... Uh that works both ways whilst the billionaire yes. can't necessarily 
come in and rocket somebody from the top, it also means that a club that decides to get their house in order and, quote, do things the right way and employs good people and they can progress up and not be instantly overtaken by uh, a mega rich person you know like a Roman Abramovich coming in and all of a sudden propelling Chelsea to the top of the the Premier League or all of a sudden propelling uh, Man City to to the top of the Premier League you know and that's why I say that the, the situation with RB Leipzig I think is uh, a little bit similar to that because I think they have rose very quickly through the the German uh, footballing ranks v- through or partly through their investment. Um, so it it still it still can happen, but I, I think it is generally overall a a fairer model than what we have at the moment, which is just like a completely free and open market where you know there basically is absolutely no rules or regulations or controls in place to try and you know keep some sort of control over you know what what happens in in the league so because i mean i don't know you know where does it end up going you know is every club gonna end up being bought by you know billionaire owners to the point where everybody's got one so like nothing's the you know i don't know how how does it even continue on in you know in that regard i don't know but i think for the for the longevity of the league and the the safety of the league to stop you know owners making unilateral decisions without even consulting you know the rest of the clubs at any level i think i think there needs to be something in place to try and you know mitigate that or stop that or give some sort of greater control back to i don't know the club in whatever shape or form whether it be you know through fan owned shares or Mm. some sort of i don't know trust organization or like i don't know charitable organization so, that owns the club or something so much of this ties into the other podcast that we've done whether it be daddy issues or, or whatever it is that we do where you have i'm going to use star wars as an example but marvel also works as an example where you have a long dedicated fan base to a particular thing, whether it be your football club, whether it be Star Wars, whether it be comic books. And these long dedicated fans have stayed there from the very beginning when it was a working class medium, when your comic books cost 10 cent from a newspaper stand. Then they started making more money out of it. And then Manchester United won the treble or Star Wars became the biggest you know, the most famous film franchise or the MCU started and the value of Marvel went from Marvel essentially being bankrupt to being worth billions. And then a bigger corporation came in, a billionaire corporation came in and said, we can use the human investment in this IP, essentially, 
in this uh, in this property, and we are going to profit off of these people' human investment, whether it be going every Saturday to watch uh, watch your local team, or whether it be you buying a copy your copy of Spider Man every week, like every Saturday for the last fifth, you know, the last 20 years. And then they go, actually, the version of Spider-Man that you've read for the last 20 years, uh, that's not going to sell well in the market today because the market's different and we want to go for a different audience. So even though it is because of you that this is worth something, we don't actually care about your investment, your previous investment up to this point. And Star Wars is a great example because it sold for a billion dollars from George Lucas to Disney for a billion dollars. And then Disney went, ah, the Star Wars fans, we're going to we don't care about we don't care about pleasing the Star Wars fans. We care about the next generation of Star Wars fans. But the reason that it was worth buying was because of the people who had invested in it before. And they had no interest in, in that. And with sport, it's the same thing. We don't have interest in the fans of Manchester United that are from Manchester because there's only, what, like 500,000 people in Manchester? In the foreign market, there's literally billions of them. So what, there's not even a comparison, right? The number of people who can buy shirts in Manchester is fewer than the number of people who will buy shirts in any other country in the world. So why do you even care about the people who made it into a profitable enterprise? Because they're not the next generation of fans. We're not looking to market to the children of Manchester. We're looking to market to the children of Delhi, to the children of Shanghai, to the children of Nigeria as that starts to develop. You know, like they're the, the future fans. They're what's profitable about it. And if that is what you want to do, right, which you're a business, you want to make money, that you're a business. If that is what you want to do, then the fucking people of Manchester have to be involved in that and they have to profit from it. The people of Manchester have to profit from the fact that their shirts are selling in in Beijing or in Africa or in India. The people of Manchester who built that club into what it is, the working class who turned it from what was it called originally? It wasn't called Manchester United. Newton Heath. Newton Heath. The working class people who turned it from Newton Heath into the most valuable fucking club in sports history. They are the ones who deserve the the dividends from that. Not some fucking Tampa Bay Buccaneers motherfuckers. Amen, sister. <laughs> But yeah, and I think I think that's something that they've underestimated in uh, this creation of the new league is underestimating the ferocity and the feverish nature of all the fans. Because whereas, like you say, maybe for Star Wars fans or for Marvel fans there's maybe not somewhere for them all to congregate and voice their opinions, except maybe a, a Comic-Con that happens, what, once a year or something? Whereas football happens every week, and there's a stadium where everybody goes, and everybody knows where to go. So if you, and especially if you're a large club like Manchester United, which has a, what, 75,000-seater stadium, 
there's a place for 75,000 angry people to go to make a lot of noise with there's a reason football violence was such a problem yeah exactly and and you know we it's talking to it's spoke about the you know the as you mentioned with comic books and movies the the concept of fan power and fan ownership taking over uh you know creative decisions or the directions of these properties some snyder cut bullshit yeah 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 i mean football is like the originator (laughs) of this (laughs) in a way you know it's it's like you think marvel fans are bad like you piss off a group of football fans and like you know it's but they will smash your head in (laughs) yeah exactly yeah the the snyder cuff the snyder cuff fans were dicks on twitter but like football fans well you're dealing with a different yeah exactly so it's like you know there there's a level of feverish support that is almost perhaps you know it's identity yeah. based it's all identity Un- based yeah and that's what the americans come unmatched yeah. in so many other things so many people is identity or childhood memories and you know family memories are so connected to these specific clubs that you played growing up as a kid or you know playing football with your favorite player's name on the back of your jersey and everything like there is support of the next level that's probably not seen in you know many other sports or or other industries and trying to take something away you know or mm. the perceived you know stealing of of uh, a club from its fans is uh well, we've seen in the last few days uh, what that effect is and and how, you know, powerful... For, and not only fans, but also players for the clubs because they understand it for the same reasons because they play for these teams. You know, it's mm. there's no draft. It's not like somebody randomly gets put in a different team that they never expected to play for. It's, you know, a lot of the young... or a lot of footballers are in this league grew up supporting either the club that they played for or another club in the league or they're fortunate enough to play for the club that they supported or, you know, they've come up through the youth ranks within that club. They have just as much, you know, passion for the club that they're in as everybody else. So, again, like I said, it must have been pretty hard for the players as well to, you know, not know anything beforehand as well. But I I think, again, that was a, a big... Uh, well, they underestimated like the the fans' connections with these clubs, which is again possibly just goes further, t- you know, to to back up fans' theories and thoughts that these owners don't care, you know, and they don't understand the clubs, which is just you know further been well been very clearly shown in what's unfolded with the attempted creation of this uh, super league and you know how these clubs now are going to try and repair their image in the aftermath of this is is also going to be very interesting like well as i was dancing around the room earlier at ed woodward resigning is that the first casualty of this you know has it finally you know have they finally taken a step too far now and uh they finally 
the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. I don't think it's going to make all the owners leave, but they might have to appoint new people to represent them because, you know, the the current people that were representing the tops of these clubs have, have now, you know, taken a leap of faith and nobody's caught them <laughs> on the other end. So yeah. they're going to be even more unpopular than than they were previously you know they've kind of they've gone over the point of no return really so I don't know how they're going to attempt to to come back from this and it's now going to be a charm offensive <laughs> to uh you know they're going to be the where with a box of chocolates and a and a rose to try and apologize and uh try to do whatever they can to try and make amends after this <laughs> super league debacle yeah. So, the answer is fan ownership. Indeed. We've decided. Fuck the billionaires. <laughs> fuck the corrupt officials that caused this essentially to happen in the first place. Fan ownership to get people more control over the football that they love and that they grew up with. And also because, you know, maybe actually if the fans are in charge... Racism will kind of take a... Will be hurt as well because the fans are accountable. You know when it's like fans are like, oh, your fans did some racist stuff and the owners are like, yes, so? If your fans own the club and some of the fans do racist stuff, then the team hurts because the fans own the team. And also fans who own the team don't want their players to suffer racist abuse because they own the team and they're invested in the players, right? So like... Things like it's not it's not a, a clear step, but like issues like racism that these organisations don't clearly don't fucking care about, and that the owners don't fucking care about because they are not the people suffering from it. Yeah. Like these are things that fans do care about, and fans do fans want to can change. and yes, the fans they are, can drive the issues forward. Yeah, yeah with more power yes. and authority if it's you know if they yeah. feel that it's an issue that is you know and the players can take it straight to the fans as well because the fans own the club yeah. and if the players are like this this shit has to stop if you're if you're a black player for newcastle and the newcastle fans say something racist to an, a player on a different team then you take it straight to your organization and go our people are being racist to other to another team that doesn't stand yeah and then the fans you know the fans are responsible for it you know whereas at the moment there's a it is a disconnect no more disconnect, Steve. Bring exactly. it together. And potentially one last thing, as you were talking about just conclusions. Hopefully, again, it, it can shed a spotlight on the failings of FIFA. Because at the end of the day, yes. th this has all come about, okay, from the greed of other people, but also kind of... We, sh we can't forget that uh, FIFA aren't, you know, aren't the heroes in this despite yeah. you know coming out with some spicy words against some you know greedy billionaires hopefully we can still remind ourselves that actually fifa still have a lot of explaining to do themselves and whilst we may have been able to chase off this new bully we still need yeah. to take a good long look at <laughs> the bully that we you know that we already have at the moment you know we we can't just completely like we can't necessarily go back to just the status quo of how the ownership is at the moment 
we also can't, you know, continue to sit in our boiling water and allow FIFA to do whatever they want with the World Cups and the corruption that has been ingrained in that organisation for decades as well. Final optimistic thought, because we've railed against the system for so long and who watches the World Cup fundamentally, as much as this is about politics, we also care about, about football. Who's going to win the Euros this year? What's your prediction? Based on the fact that a lot of the players might not be able to go there right now, we don't know how it's going to play out. We at least know the Man City's players will be able to go. San Marino. I did I did pitch Andorra until I realised that all of the Germans would still be at Bayern Munich and therefore not involved. But what's 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 your guess? Okay, give me a guess if the ESL stays, if this European Super League stays, who do you think will win? And if it's scrapped completely and forget open field, same as it was a week ago, what would your prediction be? If it be? goes France, if it stays France, because none of the Okay. Well, actually, no. That's that's a stupid answer. If it stays France, because PSG aren't in it, and there's a few. I don't know, Dom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna say if it stays Germany. Yeah, I more reckon. German players because stay in Germany. Because yeah. you say. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like Arsenal has always historically <laughs> been like ninety five percent French players. Yeah. If it if it stays, yeah, probably Germany. Uh as you were saying, because more German players stay in the German league uh, than than go elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, if it's abolished and, you know, back to normal free-for-all yeah. land. Free-for-all, yeah. A bit of an outside choice, Portugal. Oh, Portugal have a very good squad at the moment, I feel. I thought they were. I thought they'd aged. They've, they've got aged a very good younger point. crop coming through. Yeah, they've got an aging Cristiano Ronaldo who I'll still play until he's like forty nine. Uh, but yes, there is a lot of other very good uh, Portuguese players playing in the Premier League uh, that are doing very well and that are very good players as he frantically googles to find out what the the current squad is so you've got Ruben Diaz who's probably the best centre-back in the Premier League this season where does he play? Man City Jao Cancelo who's a right back who is very good also at Man City you've got Bruno Fernandes who's one of the best players in the league this season and the best player Man United have had in ages. Bernardo Silva, also very good playing in the midfield for Man City. You've got Ruben Neves at Wolves, who's very good. You've got Jao Moutinho, who's older, but is still pretty good. You've got Ronaldo, you've got Diego Jota, who went from Wolves to Liverpool not long ago, who's playing very well. You've got Jao Felix, who's at Atletico Madrid, who was, uh, like, they paid, like, 114 million for him or whatever, like, some wonder kid. Billionaires! Yeah, and they're all kind of in their mid-20s. Jao Felix is 21, Jota is 24, Ruben Neves is 24, 
Bruno Fernandes is 26, Bernardo Silva is 26, Cancelo is 26, Ruben Diaz is 23. They have a lot of uh, very good kind of uh, players that okay. are entering their entering their entering the prime. prime. Yeah. Okay. Well, of... you you know which country I'm going to choose, of course. Andorra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other than Andorra, if if these teams, uh, if the Euro- the European Super Cup fails. Belgium. I was going to say, you're going to go I, for Belgium. It's got, you know how I feel about Belgian football, Steve. They've been underperforming for years. They should... For years. They should have won it, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is their time. I'm Belgian, Belgian all the way. Thorgan Hazard, so, man of the tournament. Oh, I, <laughs> the greatest of all hazards, Thorgan Hazard. Hands down, factually proven by me, with no evidence... <laughs> That Thorgan Hazard is the superior Hazard has been for a decade. I don't care what Eden did at Chelsea. He's now at Real Madrid, and he is useless. <laughs> and, and he's in the Super League. So fucking Thorgan Hazard all the way. Thank you for joining us again for Who Watches the World Cup. In the run-up to some future episodes, hopefully we'll cover some stuff about the Euros. If anything else really crazy and interesting happens with the cross-section of politics and football, we'll be back. But in the build-up to the most politically divisive World Cup in human history, other than maybe the time it was in Nazi Germany, was there a World Cup in Nazi? There's definitely an Olympics. I don't know if there's a World Cup, but you can only imagine how crazy it would have been if there was. Qatar 2022. It's going to be real something and we're going to be here um in the build-up so we're going to re-release the episodes from the previous world cup so you can catch up on the kind of banter that we generally kind of have the themes what we talk about and then how will things have changed from the previous world cup to this one there's only one way to find out subscribe download listen i don't know send it to your dad he might be interested and we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to this episode of Who Watches the World Cup, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of football and politics. We recorded this episode the day after the Super League was announced. It was announced on the 19th. We recorded on the 20th. At the beginning of the episode, Man City had said, oh, we're pulling out. By the time we had finished recording, uh, all of the English clubs (laughs) had, uh, had pulled out. Now, today, it's the 21st, so... You know, just two days later, and the chairman of Juventus has said, uh, this European Super League, it's it's done. It's done. Um, maybe you people in the, the wild future will, uh, will have a different perspective on it. But it seems like for the moment, you know, maybe the fans actually managed to win this one. And what will be really interesting to see is whether or not the fans can continue this movement and say, it's not just this that was the problem. It's everything that led up to this. So we'll see if any reform really does come about. Fingers crossed that it does. This is our first episode of Who Watches the World Cup since the 2018 World Cup. And now we will be building up to what is probably the most politically divisive World Cup since that time it was hosted in the country that tried to undermine the democracy of most of the entrants. No, that was the last World Cup. Okay, this one is going to be the next most politically divisive World Cup in Qatar 2022. So, like, 
subscribe, download everything for Who Watches the World Cup because we're going to re-upload those old episodes. So when it comes to the 2022 World Cup, you can see where we were in 2018, where we've gone to now. There was no pandemic in 2018. So how will the face of politics have changed leading up to Qatar? Thank you again for listening. Stick around to listen to more Who Watches the World Cup. We will see you next time. Yeah, what you're saying, it makes me, you know, Dom, I've always been a big, big, uh... Oh, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, this is what editing is for. Cut. This is what editing Edit is for. Edit this out. Man, I've been thinking of this line for the last 15 <laughs> oh. minutes. <laughs> you know, I, I am so excited for this now. <sighs>